This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Hello, friends. I'm Randy Moore, the Randy of the Pastor's Podcast. And I'm Andy Payton. I'm the Andy of the Pastor's Podcast. All right. We have an apology to make just to get that out there. We recorded a podcast last week and we have new podcast equipment. We've actually we've actually implemented a professional podcast studio here, but we had a bad piece of equipment last week. We published the podcast, but Andy's mic had a had a hiss in it and we thought, you know what? Let's not let's not do that. Let's take that down. And you know, we were happy with the content of, of the podcast, but we're committed to, to excellence here. And so we apologize because we heard from some of you who heard it, maybe heard the first part of it, went back to it, and it wasn't there. So um, we got that fixed. We replaced a microphone. And so we're, we're back at it again this week. So uh, we like to begin and just kind of do a, a soul check-in, and, and and I'll start. And this comes back to, of course, John Wesley, and it was one of the ways in which he examined his uh, pastors back in the day, because it's important that um, that the pastors, those who are are, are leading that Methodist movement, um, that their souls are are healthy. And um, being a pastor can be trying on the soul sometimes, and so. I don't know. I'm coming off of the holiday season. It was such a beautiful and meaningful time here at the church, and and even at that, as pastors, we can our schedules can be so busy that we can sort of almost miss the the worshipful aspect of it. But I thought it was particularly good this year, and I'm still mm. still living into it. Really, um, I keep coming back to that Christmas Eve service that we had at seven o'clock, and it was packed and all of the candles burning and um it was just a special season in that particular yeah beautiful moment in the christian year and i'm with you maybe it's the podcast that keeps me reflecting but i'm not done with the incarnation yet We're, we're still reflecting on the gift of christmas still reflecting on the gift of Christ and its meaning, its relevance for us today. Yeah, and you just set the calendar. I mentioned this during worship on Sunday that it's interesting the way the calendar fell this year. So Epiphany uh, was on January 6th. It's always on January 6th, 12 days after Christmas. So that was on Saturday. And so churches could observe Epiphany Sunday, which we did. Other churches can observe baptism of the Lord, which we did to a degree in our liturgy. But my point was, is that we keep on going in the church while the culture at large moves on past Christmas on December 26th. The church stays in it um, through, through the 12 days of Christmas and then through the season of Epiphany and, in fact, 365 days a year. Mm-hmm. We stay with the light. The light, Yeah. A helpful metaphor. We're, we're centering in the light, looking for the light. As the Magi in the Epiphany, we're trying to be following, we're trying to follow the light. And so that's the gift of the Christian year, is it keeps us coming back again and again to these central narratives, these central points of the life of Jesus, but really central points for our own spiritual journey, our own spiritual lives today. Mm-hmm. And of course, Pastor Andy returned to his sermon series on the 25 Articles of Religion, so we had that going as well. And we're all we're up now to uh, Article 21 uh, in that series. And um, 
the title of that article is The Marriage of Ministers, and we just might as well say it. Um, Andy did not dwell on the exact nature of, of that article. Uh, that article talked about the fact that in the Protestant tradition, uh, pastors can marry, mm-hmm. unlike in the Roman Catholic tradition where uh, priests are, are celibate and they, and they cannot marry. And the article which came out of the Church of England said, you know, you know, for us, our our pastors can and priests uh, can marry, um, as opposed to, as opposed to the Catholic Church. And John Wesley, abridging those thirty nine articles for the Methodist movement in America, uh, left that in. Mm-hmm. But um, you want to talk about that just for a second in the way that you transitioned out of that to the message that you wanted to share. Well, marriage, when it comes to ministers, does have a long history within the life of the Christian tradition, as you just kind of alluded to, and we're not all on the same page within the tradition. Early, early on, I'm talking about the New Testament, it's clear that some of the disciples were married. Peter, for example, there's a story in the gospel, Gospels where Jesus actually heals Peter's mother-in-law. So that suggests, of course, that Peter was married. And so there's a sense that uh, the disciples, some of them, were at least married it seems like, though, there was a pivot around the year 500, 530 or so, I think maybe is the exact date, when the Pope basically um, said that all those marriages of all those pastors of that time did not did not count anymore. They, they were annulled, and all the children of those marriages were illegitimate. And I can't even imagine what that would have been like. But as history kind of moves on there, um, it seems like a lot of pastors continue to get married anyway. And, and as I understand the history um, around the year 1100s where they was like, no, this is the Catholic church was like, no, you're not going to get married. And um, fast forward to about three or 1500 where the articles of religion are being written and, and the Protestant reformers are like, yeah, we're going to get married. And, and that's what part of the split, I think between Roman Catholic tradition and Protestant tradition is Protestant pastors can be married in Roman Catholic tradition. They still don't do that. Um, and, I mean, in my sermon, I was a little tongue-in-cheek about it. I said, that's had mixed results. Right. And I don't want to laugh off or dismiss some of the things that's happened in the Roman Catholic Church. It's it's massively tragic and unfortunate of what, what's happened in some of the different issues and things that's happened in the last, I don't know how long it's been going on, that I feel like the Roman Catholic Church has missed an opportunity to kind of correct course when it comes to marriage and the marriage of, of priest. At the same time, though, to be fair to the Catholic tradition, um, if they just go back to the way it was before, it's going to be hard for the parishes, the Catholic parishes, to navigate that because they're used to the the priest being able to be there at right. the drop of the hat. They don't have that kind of balancing between family and the church, and so I kind of see them they're in a tough position. It's a good idea, the yeah. idea being that the priest is married to the church or married to God. All of the priest's attention is, is on God. You can see where on one level that would work. But I, I, I then try to think about, and I was a single pastor when I first started. My first wife died. I was a, I was a widower, and I was single. And um, did that mean that I could give the church more attention and God more ch- attention? Maybe. But I'm happy that I have my wife. I'm, yeah. I'm married now. I'm happy that I have my wife as a partner um, in my well, ministry. I mean, we're able to speak from experience. When folks come to us seeking counsel, and that happens sometimes, you're, you're able to speak like, well, this, is the ex- this has been my experience, that kind of thing. 
Um, so that's the point. That's the plus of being able to get married, I guess you could say. Um, when it comes to my sermon, though, I use that as what's one of the metaphors that have been used, one of the symbols that's that's been used for a person's relationship with God. As you kind of just mentioned, we know um, one of the the ideas is we become married to God, regardless if we're married or not. We can become married to God, and that's one of the of the uh, images that's been used over the centuries. And and so I decided to kind of build on that rather than talk about marriage the whole right. sermon, um, which I, I'm just more passionate and more interested in that too. So it kind of lended itself in that direction. Yeah. So your topic really was conversion. Yes. And and what is it? So you define what conversion is for the congregation. Yeah. Um, well, my definition, I started right out. First thing I said in my sermon was conversion is not about becoming religious in a new way. It's really about cultivating a new life attitude toward ourselves, one another, and the world around us. And that's it's like a whole new processing system that you're adopting when you're actually um, going into the pro. It's more of a process, the process of conversion. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's something that folks have heard before, or it got quiet when I started <laughs> out with that. And then from there, I built I built on something we use during worship every Sunday here at Methodist Temple um, to think of in another way. Uh, when we say "I see Christ in you," and that's something we say every week. What we're talking about is something deeper than just Christianity. What we're suggesting is that at our core, we've been built for Christ-like love. The world actually works best in a Christ-like way. And so that kind of lends itself to this idea of conversion. We're not, hey, we're not trying to adopt some sort of ceremony. It's not really even a theology. We're saying this is how life deeply works. God loves us in a Christ-like way, therefore, our lives, our communities, our world works best in a Christ-like way as well. And coming to terms with that, understanding that, in my mind, and I believe in the mind of Christian tradition, is what conversion is all about. Yeah, growing in Christ-likeness, yes. you said. Yes. It's, a, it's a process, and growing more like Jesus every day. Well, and I, I would push it out. I mean, just so folks can hear what I'm trying to say, it's true for the Hindu. It's true for the Buddhist. It's true for my friend who's a Jewish rabbi. It works best in a Christ-like way. Life works best in a Christ-like way. That's what we're getting at. We're not trying to make the world Christian. We're trying to help cultivate a world that is Christ-like. And when that pivot happens, that makes all the difference in the world. You use several metaphors to make your, your point. You, you started with the metaphor of the ladder. Yeah, uh, it, at the the bottom rungs of the ladder, it's like you're getting over your self-centeredness and your self self-driven desires. As you walk up the ladder, it's more and more self-giving love, Christ-like love. That's one metaphor. When it comes to a marriage, it's very helpful. Back to the marriage metaphor, um, a relationship in a marriage. Like there's the honeymoon, there's the marriage itself, and then there's the years in which you you cultivate that relationship and. Uh, Towards the end of a person's life, after after they've been married 50, 60 years, it's really quite beautiful if you've ever seen it. Uh, a couple can just kind of be in one another's presence without even saying anything at all. And I think that's a great way to think about what our relationship with God can become. You know, there's this honeymoon, there's this ups and downs, but there's this point where we can just kind of rest in one another's presence. And we'll get we'll get to some of that later on. But it's contemplative. It's that very sense. contemplative, yes. I All the contemplatives that I've read, especially if you go pre-1500, they almost all talk about 
the mystical union with God in terms of marriage. I'll just kind of hold on to that. It always comes up. Mm-hmm. Dance. And, and then the dance, dance, yeah. 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 Um, and uh, at first, dancing is kind of difficult for some of us, myself <laughs> included big time in that. I'm, I'm a really bad dancer. But uh, God takes the first step and we respond. We try to live in harmony with that and rhythm with that dance. And so uh, building on those metaphors, though, I, I, I started and tried to talk about stages of spiritual growth, which is deep down, if you're going to church, I hope we're all interested in what are the stages of spiritual growth. And uh, I use the traditional language of the purgative as one of the phases, the earliest phase, the illuminative, which is kind of like the middle phase, and then the unitive um, phase of spiritual growth. To use different terminology, though, um, I didn't get into this in my sermon, in the Methodist tradition, we have three terms we use that kind of pair up with these words. Repentance is the early stage. Faith is that middle stage. And then the ultimate goal is holiness. And and they mirror one another quite a bit. Um, the thing that is important to understand is it's not like, okay, I'm through the purgative now. Now I'm illuminative. And now I'm through the illuminative now. I'm now the unitive. It's not like that. It's These are like characteristics that they all are deepening together as one. Um, they're not just like steps. We're more like we just take this step and we're past it kind of thinking. It's more like we're describing uh, the best as we can with human language what happens when a person deepens their experience of God. So Let's come back to the purgative. You said that's, that's growing up, and the illuminative is waking up. And then the unitive was what? I missed that part. Living as one. And living as one. Yes. Okay. So yes. the, the purgative, growing up when we first start to follow Jesus, that beginning of that growth. Yeah. Um, so that's the purgative is that, that's the initial stage when a person first says, okay, I'm going to become intentional of and conscious of cultivating a relationship with a power greater than myself. It's, it's uh, that initial point of conversion where a person says, okay, I'm going to go in this different direction with my life now. And uh, it usually starts with some sort of like longing is the way I would describe it. Um, a person can have like an abrupt change in their life, like the addict gets arrested or the criminal gets caught. Those are pretty extreme. Um, another example could be like you, you lose a person that, or you lose a relationship that defined you. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be a divorce that you've went through, something like that. Some a big abrupt change though leaves you in this state of longing for more. Sometimes that's the beginning of the purgative. It can also be a much more subtle type of experience where you've climbed up the ladder, uh, you play, you played the game that the culture around us has taught us to play from the very earliest stages of our education. We're, we're taught to be a certain type of person that climbs up a ladder. You know, we get the house, we get the job, we have, have everything we would think we would want, and then we get to the top, we look around like, hey, uh, why is it that I'm not fulfilled in this? And and that can be the purgative too, because you're you're still longing for more. Yeah. The next stage, though, is that is that choice we make. Uh, the purgative really starts when you say, "Hey, I'm going to do something about this," and you initially just start to intentionally start to follow Jesus. At which point, typically, what happens is people are very passionate about their faith. They're very passionate okay. about their walk. Uh, uh, back in the day, there was these uh, these weekend kind of like spiritual retreats people would have called the Walk to Emmaus or the right. tra- Trace Dias. You, you saw it happening a lot of times when people would go on their walk, and, and all of a sudden they're like very passionate to come out of that, and they're like, yeah, I'm going to— Mountaintop. Mountaintop kind of experience, yeah. And so you're very 
they're very intentional, and and so they're reading the Bible now. They're uh, you're listening to your podcast now. You're reading your books now. You just can't get enough of it. Going to worship because you want to, and uh, the tendency though then is I've noticed, and and I'm just speaking from my own personal experience. Really, um, what happens if you're not careful is you get filled with spiritual pride. You start looking down at other people for not being quite as passionate about things as you are. And so you got to be really on guard in the purgative phase um, um, when you begin to go down that path and enter into this journey. Mm. The purgative, though, that's the, that's the growing up. Next is the illuminative, the waking up. Yeah. So in the purgative, what you're doing is you're trying to rid yourself of all that unchristlikeness. In the illuminative, though, what happens is the light comes on. And it becomes less of a kind of a religious thing and more of a, to use the old cliche, more of a relational experience where it's, you come to this moment really like, holy moly, this is real. Uh, these stories in scripture point to something that's real. These sacraments point to something that's real. The the songs that we're singing, it's, it's real. It's all very real. And so the illuminative phase in my sermon, the way I described it, it was like you go from following Jesus to this experiential understanding that, hey, look, Jesus is actually following me. Christ is following me, coming after me. And this moment is so important when it comes to our faith. Um, in the purgative, when a person is in that phase, they're very aggressive about their faith. In the illuminative, what happens is you begin to rest in it. And the reason you're able to rest in it is you, beca- you become aware, quite aware, that we are a part of a, really are a part of a power greater than ourselves. And God really does love us in a Christ-like way. We're in the river, if you will, of Christ-like love, and we don't have to make it happen. And, and you're able to kind of rest in that. And the, and the way I talk about it and talked about it in my sermon, I find this very helpful, is the illuminative has this quiet confidence in Christ-likeness. They have this quiet kind of ability to just rest. And, and the way you really know you're growing is when an interruption happens in your life and you're able to navigate it and not lose your mind over right. it, you know, and that's easier said than done, of course. Road rage. Road rage and faith rage. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. right. And uh, I was just talking to someone about the difference between purgative and illuminative this morning, and uh, the thing I said about the purgative, it seems like folks are pretty aggressive in that phase, and the illuminative uh, folks are... Zen. More zen, <laughs> more zen. It, but it, it, I don't want to come across like the illuminative does nothing at all. It's the way they go about it. It's the spirit in which it's done. Um, they are very much interested and invested in being intentional and enacting their faith, but you know they're not trying to like mow the world over with it. They they have a sense that it's this is this is it. This is real, and uh, and this idea of Christ likeness is the deepest truth of our lives. Yeah, you said that this quiet confidence that you're talking about—that's a definition of faith. Yeah, yeah, the word confidence itself, con, is a, goes back to the Latin word with, fidence, faith. You work with faith. And so when an interruption comes your way, something doesn't go our way, to move with faith means um, I'm going to continue to work with this scenario in a Christ, Christ-like way, knowing that God is also working in a Christ-like way. And so you're able to kind of navigate those transitions, I guess, to use a phrase, with grace. You used a quote that you've quoted often, and so I'll let you expand on that a little bit because clearly clearly it speaks to you, um, and it's uh, evangelize the inevitable. Mm. 
Yeah, it comes from E. Stanley Jones. Yeah, evangelizing the inevitable. And he also goes on to say you cooperate with the inevitable. And I, if I could just, I wish I could just articulate <laughs> this in a way where it clicks for people. But what he's suggesting is, and I believe this with all my heart too, what he's suggesting is, is at the core of this world, of the core of all reality, is that our lives are meant to work in that Christ-like way. And we have one of two choices. We're either going to work with it and find the joy and the peace and the sense of security that comes with it, or we're going to work against it. And if we work against it, we find ourselves in a sense of self-frustration and anger and even sometimes violence. And it's not only true, and here's where Jones would go with it, and I'm, I believe he's right because I can see it in my own world today. It's not only true for us individually. It's also true for us as communities. It's also true for us as nations. We can either go Christ-like or we cannot. If we, if we choose to go with it, it makes a huge positive impact on our lives and the world around us. If we choose to go against it, we break down. Um, Jones would say, God's law, God's way never breaks. It's we who break against God's law, God's way, which is a bold claim. But uh, before you just dismiss it, stop and think about it. Can you think of it? I can't think of it, Randy. Can you think of one instance in your life where it's not appropriate to respond in a Christ-like way? I can't. No. No, you're right. And why is that? Because that's the deepest truth of our life. Mm -hmm. Because that's the way God works. That's the way the world works. The God that made the world made it to work in a Christ-like way. That's what he's getting at. And so the, the illuminative phase is this, the lights come on. You know, I'm confident in this. I'm not going to waste my time investing in things that don't fit with that vision of what the world should be that we see in Jesus. Yeah, you said that God really is speaking uh, at that point, and then that opens up a dialogue mm-hmm. with God. I'm sure yeah. we can hear God from that standpoint much better. Yeah, it's it's not just it's not just a way of life. It's a way of relating to life too. The illuminative is, um, and what I mean by that is, God is always speaking through the gift of our lives. Uh, there's Christ-like impulses that come just personally and uniquely to us, and this is an important pivot too in our walk with God. Um, if you're not careful, it it all becomes like a religion again, right? It's, it's all about, I'm going to live this Christ-like way. That's the answer. No, it's, it's a, yeah, I mean, that's the way life works. It, it's sovereign in that sense, sure, but it's more than that. It's like, I'm going to enter into this, this dialogue where Christ speaks to me. Uh, life speaks to me and is addressing me. Uh, and, and that has a face, it has a personality as well. And I use some examples like, things that have happened to everybody. Like, for example, let's say you, you, you're you in this uh, season where your relationship with a sibling's not going very well. And let's just say you're walking down the street one day and you cross paths with a teenager, and that teenager, for whatever reason, reminds you of a time where you're with your brother and it was your relationship was good, it, it was healthy. That's a moment where I think that's more than just a coincidence. That That's life tapping us on the shoulder. We can follow that Christ-like impulse or not. It's a relational type of thing. Another example I use is like, let's say you're a parent and you have a toddler, and the toddler, of course, is going to throw some fits, and you're having a hard time. You're at wit's end with that relationship with your toddler. You want to be a good parent, but you're, 
you know, you're on the verge of losing your temper and, and it's hard. And let's just say you go to the grocery store and you see a, a, a newborn baby with the mother and it reminds you of a time in which, you know, it much more positive and uh, in the terms of the innocence of just having a newborn baby and you turn and hug that toddler of yours now in that spirit. These are the kinds of ways I think life is always tapping us on the shoulder. Um, and I use it in my own personal life. Sometimes some of my best sermons come like I'm running in the morning and it just kind of pops in my head. And uh, I, I was not the orchestrator of that, I don't think. It came somewhere else. It came from another source from somewhere else. And, and our world has cultured us in the West to kind of dismiss these things as just more or less coincidences. But if you're going to take the stories in Scripture somewhat seriously, if you're going to take this idea of God somewhat seriously, then you have to kind of think about maybe, hey, maybe there's this relationship that's being offered that's much more than just my life as a series of random occurrences. And uh, instead of that, it, the replacement is like it's filled with meaningful coincidences now where we're, we're trusting those Christ-like impulses. And so now we're getting to this place in the illuminative phase now where our our way of praying actually starts to change too once we begin to see this. In the purgative, we're really busy. We're reading, we're studying, we're saying our prayers to God. In the illuminative, what happens is you begin to listen. And you listen for those things that God has to say to us. And you take that life attitude then into your regular life and you begin to follow through on these little nudges that are always happening. Uh, for me, I don't know about you, Randy, for me, when I started waking up to this, it was like a whole new conversion for me all over again. Uh, and, I, and I woke up to this as a pastor, believe it or not. <laughs> Five or six years ago, it's when it really started for me. Right. I, I, I came to the end of, of a season of my own spiritual journey, and I was like, why do I feel so empty? And I just started searching, and I kind of ran into what we call the contemplative now, and, and I started to realize, wait a minute, God, you're saying God comes to me disguised as my life? And you, you're <laughs> saying that God's speaking to me through the world around me? And you're saying that it's not just a bunch of like random stuff, it's, 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 there's something else happening here? And yeah, the illuminative, the contemplative would say, absolutely, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, the uh, contemplative prayer is really what did it for for me. Yeah, you know, it it really did because I I began to wonder. Okay, I'm 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 reading all the right things and I'm studying all the right things and I'm praying all the right prayers, but it's I wanted to know this Jesus on a more personal level, not just as and I always use this example, but I don't I don't think an example gets any better than this. I don't want to know Jesus as a character in a book that I take down off of the shelf and read, but I want an actual relationship. And that's mm -hmm. what happens in in the contemplative way of mm -hmm. uh, of relating of relating to God. Not that the others you set aside you, no, you, you don't. Con you continue yeah. to do all continue. those other yes. things. It, it's yeah. a part of it still, but then yeah. there begins to become another layer to it. You read the Bible sure. You say your prayers to God, sure, but then you stop and you listen. And what, what you find is if you listen, there's some really great stuff that God has to say to us. It comes up. It's like, I call them Christ-like impulses. That's the way I describe it. it it's there. Um, 
and you can follow through on those moments. You, you don't have to necessarily, but some exciting things happen when you do. And, and it just, life becomes much more exciting. Silence is the language of God. Yes. It's not the only language of God, but it's the language of God. And that's what we do when we pray contemplatively. What we're doing is we are training ourselves not to be distracted. Mm -hmm. And we are more distracted now than we ever have been. Yeah. And it's not easy. But if we can train our spirits and our mind and our bodies uh, not to be distracted, now we can hear God. Mm -hmm. Now we can hear God. Yeah, I mean, and we could just finish the podcast talking about this. Yeah. It's so, I'm so passionate about it because it's so real. It, it really is. It's the missing dynamic, I think, in a lot of our Western world today. Uh, we live in a disenchanted world. It's so unfortunate. We've dismissed deep knowing. We've missed, dismissed intuitive knowing. Instead, we've, we've been told you have to play by this cultural game and people walking around spiritually empty and anxious about it. Because if you don't measure up, then, well, what, my life is over? Like, that kind of stuff. It's all about, it's, it's all up to you. It, it, it's just, it's, it's quite, quite unfortunate. Now, you were talking about uh, prayer there again. Um, I use an acronym for the word pray that's very helpful to me. Um, P- uh, we pause, R, we relax. And for me, when I'm praying contemplatively, a big portion of my contemplative prayer is just me waiting for me to relax. Takes uh, a while. So. <laughs> it does. Some, I mean, you stop and, you're, and you think, okay, I'm going to just relax into God's presence here. Uh, and a lot of times I'm filled with a lot of anxiety and tension, and I have to wait for, for my, my body to relax. And then the next one is you accept P-R-A, you accept your life situation for what it is. God's not going to be found anywhere else than right now, right here, right in this moment, so you accept the way it is. And then you finally, why? You, you yield. You yield to those Christ-like impulses that are finding you in this moment. Or yes. Or yes, yeah, yeah. That's another way to go about it. That's a good way to say it too, yes. Yeah. Um, We've moved into the unitive, I think, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, living as one. Living as one, and, and well, what ultimately happens when you begin to see the illuminative, the light begins to come on. It, it naturally leads leads into the unitive, and and what I mean by the unitive, what when, when I'm talking about is kind of like a yeah, use a phrase here, maybe incarnational activism <laughs> is one way to think about it. Like this is the arena to which we experience God's presence. It is this world. It is this world. God's presence is shining through my neighbor, the world around me, and so I respond accordingly. And what happens in the unitive really is you begin to let go of all those culturally conditioned labels that we've been taught to see the world through. And it, and it, it's it's easier said than done because we really have been conditioned to see people in certain ways, groups of people in certain ways. Uh, a lot of times it leads to a sense of suspicion towards groups of people in certain ways. Uh, there's a lot of uh, I didn't get into this in my sermon. There's a lot of forgiveness that has to happen to begin to see in a unitive way. Um, but but the quote that I've come back to again and again, I think, that gets at what we're trying to say here is, uh, this comes from Dr. Leonard Sweet. He said, uh, "The word for God's word for the flower is the flower. God's word for the tree is the tree. And then God's word for truth is Jesus. And let's stop right there for a moment. It's not Christianity. It's not a creed. 
<laughs> it's not the book that we like to argue over. It's flesh and blood. It's Jesus. And, and the language Jesus speaks is concrete love. That's the unitive phase. You, you are able to move past the judgments and love people in concrete ways. Uh, we're in that unitive phase when we simply respond to the suffering of others. I have the advantage, Andy, of hearing your sermons twice. I'm not the only one. There are others. Most people come to one service or the other. And um, I have to say that in the second service, you were just a bit more on fire. You, when you were speaking about how we are culturally conditioned, you spoke of culturally conditioned crap. You said crap in this. I know. That's, I've been kicking myself all week about that moment. No, I love the passion that was in it. I mean, oh, it's so frustrating. It, I, you're like, we live in a world of labels where the words that we have adopted, the ideas that we have adopted, we have given them permission to form the walls, the ceiling, the floors of our existence. And what the spiritual journey is trying to do is just blow that all to smithereens and say, no, no, you are in God's presence now. They are in God's presence now, and we are all connected. And I can't say that I'm there all the time. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I've ever been there all the time. But I can say in my best moments, I've had flashes of this unitive where I'm able to just to love someone respond to them, listen to them. So, yeah, yeah. Um, one way I've heard it described is in the unitive phase, you move from a top-down type of thinking to a bottom-up type of thinking. What top-down thinking is is like you have an agenda, you have a goal, you have an expectation about what should happen, and that basically gives you tunnel vision. You miss everything around you as you go and enact that, and you get frustrated with everything that doesn't, fit into that. And that's much of our world today and, and the algorithms and social media and the news and everything that we've been inundated with, saturated with. And what, what bottom-up thinking, though, it does is it, it gets more into that, I'm relaxed in the presence now. What's life showing me now? What's my neighbor showing me now? And you're able then from that place to wrap your arms around the world in front of you. It's it's like a situational type of awareness, which is not m talked about much in our in our world today. But I would have to say I believe that bottom up awareness is going to lead to much better decisions because you're dealing more with reality rather than your expectation and agenda towards reality. You brought up um, one of the desert fathers in a really interesting story. And uh, just for some background, this was uh, these were the those Christians in the fourth and fifth centuries after Constantine, after Christianity went from the catacombs to the cathedrals, and some people went, "Wow, their heads were spinning." They, they had a hard time getting used to this idea that Christianity was this one thing, and now it's state religion. What are we going to do? And a lot of people just went to the desert. Mm -hmm. Some had already gone to the desert, but they went out there to be with God, and and we get these beautiful teachings from these mm -hmm. desert fathers and, and mothers. And the one that you referenced was Abba Amonas. Yes. Well, they, the desert fathers and mothers saw where the institution, it had become an institution by the time they were there. 
uh, on the scene, and you're talking about four or five hundreds in that era where where Christianity is becoming institutionalized, and I would say kind of like hijacked by the Roman culture in so many ways. They were organized. It looked just like the Roman culture in a hierarchical type of way, and, and they began to walk walk back some of their more uh, aggressive type of ethics. And, and so the Desert Fathers and Mothers were like, this is not it. And so they leave. And uh, one of the people that uh, was mentioned in the stories is like, uh, Abba Amonis, I think is his name. I think that's how you say it. Um, but <laughs> uh, it is said that he, he grew so much in his sense of the goodness of God, he took no account of another person's wickedness. And I just, I read that and I'm like, oh my gosh, holy cow. To even experience that for a little bit, just think of the liberation. I don't have to carry around this litany of offenses anymore. I don't have to carry around the burden of all those hurts anymore. I've learned to in a sense, let him go and forgive, forgive it. And it naturally lends itself to all I'm focused on now is the, the goodness of God in this moment. And that's what he found his way towards, I guess, and in a and kind of like a habitual state of it. And so much so he becomes a bishop. I guess they elect him, elected him as a bishop at one point. And there's a story told about him where the clerics found a teenage Teenage girl who'd become pregnant outside of wedlock, they brought her to him, to the good Abba. For judgment good, and punishment. For, yeah, because that's what they did typically. And uh, he he puts the sign, actually I think he does the sign of the cross on her belly, mm-hmm. and then uh, he tells them to sell all the finest linen and give her the money. And I'm like, that's the Christian spirit, man. That's it. That's so beautiful. And, uh, and then what the unitive does, just they're able to love in a fierce way like him. Yeah. Yeah. So conversion is not about becoming religious. It's about that that new attitude. Mm-hmm. Life is speaking to me. I'm a part of a sacred presence. I'm now in a place where I'm genuinely, authentically able to love. And it's not that I'm not religious. It's not that we're not religious. We're quite religious, actually, because it helps us continue to tune into that deeper reality. It's, it, you begin to find that this container leads to that content. And uh, and it just it's a it's just for me uh, growing up in the church. This is I've never heard much said about this kind of stuff, but somehow I found my way to it, and I think it's real. I, I can't say that I'm anywhere near any of this stuff, but I know that's that's the ladder that's worth climbing. Climbing that's the marriage that I want to cultivate. Um, that's, that's the dance that's you want to dance. That's the dance that we want to <laughs> that we want to dance. Yes, yes. And uh, and I think when people look at Christianity, that's kind of what they're hoping for, too. And they don't want this. I feel like sometimes we settle for a show. I worry about that. Mm-hmm. You know, people come in and they say, "Well, I just want to be fed." Okay, and I and I get it. Like that's important. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. I want you to have a good experience when you come here, but that's not it. That's not the big point. The big point is like you're going out. You're falling in love with the world. Um. And the real saints of the world get this. Yeah. Somebody said, if you have trouble falling in love with a person, try falling in love with a blade of grass first and then work your way work up. Work way up. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that too. Yes, yes. All right, yeah. very good. Um, in the last minute or so that we have, I didn't look ahead, but I know you have because yeah. it's Tuesday and you're preaching on Article 22. 
Yes. Yeah. And so Article 22 has to do with the the rites and the ceremonies of the church. And so uh, basically, again, what the Articles of Religion are doing, the Protestant reformers are busy defining why they're not Catholic. And so this article follows that that pattern. And so rather than the, the Catholic pattern of worship where they have one kind of set type of worship, everywhere you go, it's the same type of pattern, um, the Protestants believed you can change it and adapt it according to your context. And, and what this article does is gives permission to a person to be able to do that. And so I'm going to build on that basic idea that the gospel introduces us to something that is objectively consistent, but yet there's room for subjective creativity in that. And, and so I think there's something really great in this um, for us. And I'm going to I'm going to talk about some of the history of our own Methodist movement, particularly I'm going to focus on the story of East Stanley Jones and how his life influenced the life of one Martin Luther King and his uh, fight for justice in the United States and how, uh, I'm going to circle back around with this, and how, yeah, it's objectively true, but subjectively it must be lived into in our context today. And it's always going to look a little bit different, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 I'm excited about this sermon. I hope I can make some sense out of it. So how can how can we be consistent but yet open to creative interpretations and and contextual and how we live into it? I'm excited about it too, uh, Pastor Andy. And if you're excited about it, just please know that we'd love to have you as a listener here on the podcast. But we'd love to see you in church if you if you uh, want to make it. I mean, we worship at eight thirty traditionally and eleven o'clock in a contemporary service right here at Methodist Temple. You can also worship with us virtually as well. So just know that you're welcome uh, to join us that way. We thank you for listening. We hope you have a great week. And we'll talk to you again next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.